Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Tuesday, September 6th, day nine of the 2022 U.S. Open in the books. I know there are only six players remaining in each of the singles draws, but we now definitively know who the women's singles title runs through. Simply put, this tournament is now Caroline Garcia's to lose. She is playing that much better than the rest of the field, and she is Established that fact once again with her day nine straight set quarterfinal victory over Coco Goff. That was the best thing I saw throughout Tuesday's action, watching Garcia play so aggressively, not only behind her serve, which of course she has established as the number one serve on the WTA tour this season, holding more frequently than any other player in the women's game, but it's the aggression she's playing on the return of serve and how the confidence she has built from her success on her own serve allows her to play that much more freely as a returner and to watch Caroline Garcia not only win what 13 consecutive matches but to now watch her go 31 and 4 overall over a 35 match stretch you win 90% of your matches over the course of two months how can you not have the attention of the tennis world and we have seen flashes of this from Caroline Garcia before she has been ranked top five before this 2022 season, even if her game had fallen off coming into the year, but she has reestablished herself as at the top of the women's game over the course of these past few months. And again, she was excellent in a straight set victory over Coco Golf. Want to break down that match here on today's show and get into all four of our singles quarterfinals. We are now ensured that there will be a first-time U.S. Open champion at this 2022 U.S. Open in both the men's and women's singles draws. And personally, I think that's an exciting thing as a tennis fan. Yes, of course, it's always enjoyable to watch the greats pad their stats, whether it be Djokovic in his pursuit of the calendar slam last year, whether it be Rafa looking now to double his lead in the Grand Slam total counter, whether it be Serena Williams looking to win that 24th singles major to cap off what is the greatest career in tennis history. We all love those narratives, but I think the joy of the uncertainty that comes with this weekend. Who is going to end up as the champion? Is any player in the men's side definitively playing better than the rest of the field? I don't think the answer to that question is yes. Similarly, on the women's side, yes, I know Caroline Garcia is playing well, but will she able to be able to sustain that, excuse me, over the course of the next two matches. Will world number one Iga Sviantec find that untouchable form she found earlier this year? There's a lot of fun narratives across the board. Want to get into all of them today. Of course, again, talk about our day nine matches, which include victories from Onshabur, Kasparud, and of course, Karen Hatchnup in what was a fun five-setter over Nick Kyrgios as our Tuesday nightcap. Going to get into all of that on today's show. And in case you listeners haven't been able to tell by now, it will be just me riding Han Solo. Of course, it was so fun to have David Gertler and Nate Walrith on these shows over the past couple of days. And I promise I have more guests in the queue, including some of your Crack Rackets favorites coming over the next couple of days as well. But midweek here, everyone's got to get their schedule together as such. I'm going to run you through all of Day 9's results. Han Solo, of course, the reason we're able to do that day in, day out here at Crack Rackets is because of 
of the support we get from all of you listeners. We're so grateful. So many of you tune in week in, week out. And I say this far too frequently, and I'm immensely grateful for this fact. But, you know, every month we seem to send new highs in terms of our total downloads for the total month and whether that's because so many of you listeners continue to return whether that's because so many of you new listeners have decided to give us a chance we're immensely grateful for that fact and hope all of you continue to tune in not only for the rest of this 2022 u.s open but of course throughout the course of the tennis year as there's a lot of exciting action happening around the world at any given moment of course a massive shout out to our friends at tennis point who understand the necessity of providing a daily tennis podcast to tennis fans everywhere. They also provide the best equipment at the best prices. If you want to learn more about some of that equipment, tune into the start of yesterday's episode with Tennis Points, Nate Walrith. But to learn more, go to tennis-point.com. Use our promo code CR15 when you do inevitably make a purchase. And how can you not? Those rackets, even in image form on a website are always just oh so enticing. When you walk into a tennis store, at least as a tennis fan, and if you're listening to a daily podcast, I imagine you feel this way as well. You're just sold. You're like, all right, I have to probably get something. I can't leave here empty-handed, even if it's just sweatbands. It's all too enticing. You're going to take a racket off the wall. You're going to take a swing. Anyways, all that. You see me fantasizing as I'm even thinking about it and just talking through the imagery of walking into that tennis shop. You've got the Wilson section, the Babolat section, the head section. Ooh, is that a new Yonix racket? Well, you know, I never thought I was going to use Dunlop, but this paint job, the feel of the model in my hand, I'll give it a few swings. The point is uh, all of those products available with our friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With that said, let's get into day nine of the 2022 US Open. And things really have slowed down from our perspective here at Crack. Rackets. I suppose my voice and the speed with which I talk will never slow down, no matter how hard I try to pace myself. And nevertheless, four matches for us to discuss on today's show. Feels like we can get into the nitty and gritty of each of them. Let's start with the best thing I saw on day number nine. And that unequivocally was Caroline Garcia, who again moves to 31 and four since June 20th. So all of July, all of August first and last week. So two and a half months, 31 and four is Caroline Garcia. Of course, during that stretch of time, she wins the title in Bad Hamburg. She knocks out Iga Sviantek, dealing her her first loss on clay of the year in Warsaw, goes on to win that Warsaw title, comes through qualifying to win the title in Cincinnati and has yet to drop a set on her way to the semifinals of the 2022 U.S. Open. You look for Caroline Garcia. It starts with the serve. And during this stretch of time, she's winning 74% of her first serve points. Again, 74% of her first serve points. That number would rank second behind only Naomi Osaka this season, who's at 75.4. But perhaps even more impressively, she's also winning 52.3% of her second and serve points that number would rank second behind only Ludmilla Samsonova. I mean, again, that's how good 
Caroline Garcia has been on serve this season. It's not just the first serve. It's not just the second serve. It's the totality of her service game, her ability to attack that first ball, her confidence moving forward. And she was 13 of 16 overall on net points in this match against Coco Goff. That number is selling her short because there were numerous times where she hit the approach shot and put herself in such an advantageous position that Goff knew she had to go for broke on that first passing shot. She wouldn't be able to set herself up with, you know, as my old coach Ed Nagel used to say, the dip and chase, where you dip the first passing shot at the feet of your opponent at the net and hope they pop up the volley so that you're able to chase down and put away a second passing shot attempt. Coco Goff couldn't do that because Garcia was that good with her plus one forehands, giving herself that much margin while still producing the required amount of depth and pace. And, you know, she was up 4-0 in 20 minutes in this match and just had Goff under fire. And credit to Coco Goff, who competes as well as anyone. And for her to continue to fight on a day where just from a tactical perspective, she was at such a disadvantage. The pace Garcia was presenting to the Goff forehand was elite. And you saw Goff's forehand breakdown. It was really tough for her to take her forehand anywhere close to the baseline because, you know, she would be shanking that ball or hitting it long and just losing control or popping it short. And as such, she had to seat six feet of baseline territory to Garcia just so she could get a clean swing at the ball. And you know, you can't give Garcia six feet because she's going to take it and continue to attack with those proper margins and mix in a short angle, mix in the backhand slice. 24 winners against 22 unforced errors for Garcia in this match. She faced only three break points, was broken once. And again, that's a credit to Goff, who went down that quick 4-0 lead in set number one, only to sort of slowly claw her way back and really did find some rhythm by the end of the first set, started, go, you know, abandoning, I would say, pace and going more for placement on the first serve. She made 78% of them throughout the course of the match. She was 4 of 15 on second serves. And I've spoken about this on previous mini break podcasts, so I apologize for repeating myself. You watch the same player play five consecutive matches, you're going to say the same things about them because what makes Caroline Garcia so effective, A, she plays on her terms, and B, those terms are, if I got to look at a second serve, I'm taking it inside the baseline. She was on top of the service line on some of those returns. And dare I say once again, downright disrespectful in the best possible way in her return positioning. Garcia dominated. I I, I don't know how else to say it. And again, credit to Coco Goff, who creates so well out of the backhand corner, regardless of her court positioning, the depth she's able to generate cross court down the line, her willingness to try and sneak forward and just try and do a litany of things to throw Garcia off her rhythm. She threw her kitchen sink at Garcia. It just... Garcia was unaffected. She, again, her forehand, the backhand down the line, her ability to execute it, even in the final game where Garcia is serving for the match up 5-4 in that second set, you know, Garcia got a little tentative, particularly the 30-all point. Coco Goff had a backhand down the line. She missed it in the net. It was, you could tell Goff did a little jumping spin as if to say, well, that was my chance. Like, I had it. That was the ball because, you know, again, two sloppy errors from Garcia, uh, off of good returns from Goff, but just she got a little tentative at the end. 
And unfortunately, again, 30-all, 5-Fort Goff has the backhand. She misses it in the net. Next point, good serve down the tee, and Garcia did such a good job of finding the Goff forehand return. Again, only faced three unforced errors in the match. Uh, three, excuse me, three break points in the match. Um, Goff hits a good first serve. Uh, Garcia hits a good first serve. You know, Goff gets a ball... Pretty deep back, but Garcia hits an advantageous ball inside the baseline. Goff dumps a backhand in the net, and just like that, Caroline Garcia, smile on her face, that's contagious, 6-3-6-4 into the semifinals, and it was a clean performance. Did she serve her best? No, only made 52% of her first serves, and credit to Coco Goff, who, what her mechanism was to get back in this match and just make herself more competitive was to go after the first ball with more aggression, whether that was on a second serve return, and to Goff's credit, she won 56% of her own second serve return points, Um, whether it was really go after that plus one ball, even if you know, again, it wasn't perfectly placed, just more depth than anything else to not give Garcia something to tee off on. Goff made adjustments, and I think big picture, you look at the slams for Goff this season, two quarterfinals for her, obviously the final at the French Open, quarterfinals now here at the U.S. Open, played a good three-set match against Anisimova at Wimbledon. You know, Coco Goff's 34-17 and 17 overall on the year. She's winning two-thirds of her matches. She's top eight in the points race right now. You look for Coco Goff. She's currently sitting at a new career high in the live rankings of number eight. She's also currently fourth in the points race. And by the way, she's, well, actually, it's pretty close, 322 points ahead of Simona Halep, who's currently in eighth place. I suppose you want to do the gap between her and ninth. She's a little bit more sizable there. She's got a 625-point lead on ninth place. Maria Sakari. Okay, Goff should get to the year-end finals. That's a pretty comfortable margin. And again, you look for Coco Goff, the hold percentage this season dipped slightly from last year, but still above her career average. The break percentage, her forehand return has gotten better. And, you know, again, 34 and 17, she's lost four total first round matches in 17 total events, but she's made seven total quarterfinals in 17 quarter uh, total events. So more often than not, A, she's winning at least one match, putting herself in competition, and B, putting herself in that final weekend, putting herself in the conversation for the big results. And at 18 years old, all you can ask for out of Goff is for her, her to get more data points like this. Okay, this player can overwhelm me with power. What can I do to get out of that situation? Maybe it was instead of making a high percentage of first serves, actually being a little bit more aggressive on that first serve. And maybe it was compromising placement for power uh, throughout the course of some of the things she was doing. Maybe it was sacrificing that forehand and understanding, okay, I'm going to make errors, but I just can't give up this six feet of ground on the baseline. 18 years old, you're allowed to learn these lessons. And for her, again, how many quarterfinals? She's made at least, I think, the fourth round at every slam and Come on now. I think we all know how special Coco Goff already is, and I think we're all looking forward to the next decade because, again, by 2030, Coco Goff will be 26 years old in that 2030 season. 15 more years of Coco Goff. Buckle in, folks. It's going to be fun. At the same time, you look for Caroline Garcia. Uh, She's now made seven second weeks at slams. This was her second quarterfinal, first semifinal for the French woman, and she becomes the eighth French woman in WTA Tour history to reach the semifinals of a Grand Slam event. 
I mean, she's playing that well. And you look for her at the start of the season again, 31 and 14, but uh, 31 and 4, excuse me, over her last 35, but 39 and 15 overall, excuse me, 40 and 15 overall. That means she started the season, what, 9 and 11 overall on the year? And to bounce back the way she has, to do it on grass, clay, hard courts, that serve, the power tennis, the aggression she plays with just transcends surface. And then from a movement perspective, Garcia's fit is a fiddle. And it's just remarkably impressive that, again, in a three-month stretch, she is now finds herself currently sitting uh, all the way up in the points race at number five. Caroline Garcia's worked her way up to number five in the points race. That's freaking crazy. She's 10 in the WTA Live rankings. She was outside the top 50 like three months ago, and now she's 10. She's 10. You got to love this sport, folks, that it provides these sort of opportunities for precipitous rises. And again, Goff's inside the top 10 for the first time in her career. She has been that consistent match in, match out. But Caroline Garcia is your player to beat because simply put, she just overwhelmed Goff, and it didn't matter what adjustment Goff tried, the totality of the power Garcia could play with, whether it's on the forehand or the backhand wing, to be honest. She's that effective on both. Now, the forehand's the moneymaker, but you know she'll sneak a backhand up the line and sneak in behind it with plenty of comfort. She's your player to beat, and you look right now, according to Tennis Abstract, it's fascinating to note that she's an underdog against Own Jabour, according to the metrics now they have Jabour as a 66.8% favorite perhaps factoring in the totality of what Jabour has done not only over the course of this 2022 season but the totality of things she has done since 2020 where she has been as successful as any player not named Iga or Barty since tour play resumed in this pandemic era um, I mean you look according to ten, uh, to our friends at DraftKings though Caroline Garcia opens up as a minus 155 favorite. And you look right now, according to DraftKings, again, only six players, five players left in the draw. Uh, or excuse me, six players left in the draw because Sabalenka plays Pliskova today. Um, Shiantek and Garcia are now both plus 200 favorites to win the title. So Garcia is, there's no longer a gap. She was number two for a while. There's no longer a gap. People have, you know, the eye test says she is playing better than Iga Shiantek. The most games she's dropped in a match thus far is the seven she just dropped to Coco Golf. But again, she goes up for love you know, in control of that match early on. And then what does she do to start set number two? Goff looks like she's about to hold. And yet Garcia lands a couple of big returns, draws a couple of Goff forehand errors, and Garcia is able to break and immediately consolidate for that two-love lead and hold on to that single break of serve for the rest of the set. She's winning early. She's winning often. She's gaining confidence. Caroline Garcia is the player to beat. I don't care what Tennis Abstract says, although I will say I was remarkably impressed with the way Own Jabur knocked out Isla Tamjanovic in straight sets today. Jabur, a 6-4-7-6 winner. Now, I will say personally, Jabur was my pick on our GSP Ace of the Day segment where I offer my picks and preview each of the day's matches. So if you haven't already been tuning in to those podcasts, go ahead. Go give it a listen. We still got a few days left in this event. Uh, The big picture thing being I had her 
to win the match in straight sets. I also had her to cover a two-and-a-half game spread. Not only did she come back from 5-3 down in the second set to win in straight sets by winning 6-4, 7-6, she wins by three games, indeed covering that two-and-a-half game spread. So shout-out to you, Own Jabur, for delivering our Cracked Rackets Ace of the Day segment. Two victories. I mean, Own Jabur now 42-13. and 13. Excuse me, 43-13. and 13. Overall this season, she's winning over 77% of her matches. She's now 103-38 and since August 2020. She's winning over 73% of her matches. She has been as consistent as any player not named Barty or Iga over the course of the past two and a half years. And you look for Own Jabur now, again, since August 2020 at the Grand Slams. She's made the second week at the Slams now uh, on five different occasions. We've played 11 total Slams since August 2020. We played what? U.S. Open. Oh, no. We've played, excuse me, 12 total, uh, 10 total Slams. She's made the second week at five of them. She's made the quarterfinals now at three of them. She's into the semifinals for the second time this year. Obviously, she's coming off of the Wimbledon final in the slam prior. What was so particularly impressive about Onjabur in her victory over Isla Tamjanovic in the quarterfinals was the fact that Jabur did not have plan A working for her. Jabur made only 40% of her first serves in this match. And truth be told, from a aesthetic perspective, I mean, just the quality of the tennis was not, it was not the greatest. There was not the incredible shot making you know Jabur is capable of when she plays her best tennis. And, you know, this match got mucky. This match got physical, which for us Cracked Rackets fans, we love that sort of tennis. But it wasn't your flashy, eye-popping winners, uh, sensational creativity. It wasn't your typical Jabur victory. And yet, the way Owens went about finding ways to win points in this match. I think that was what was so impressive is that no two points looked precisely the same. Yeah, Jabur had some success when she landed first serve. She won 71% of her first serve points, but she only landed 40% of her first serves. As such, the opportunities to hit the obvious plus one forehands. She just didn't have that many of them throughout the course of this match. And in particular, the way she got broken to go down 5-3 in set number two, spraying on two forehands, both of them wide, both of them bailout shots in long rallies against Tomjanovic. You felt like, oh man, Jabur may have lost the thread. Tomjanovic may have broken her physically and Jabur just no longer has the patience right now to play with the sort of physicality required to last long enough in the rallies for the potential short ball that may come off the racket of Isla Tomjanovic. And from 5-3 down, Jabur buckled in and said, you know what? You can't get a ball by me. And I think the stats are indicative of that fact. Tamjanovic hit only 12 winners in this match. She had nine double faults against 12 total winners. That's indicative of the defense Jabur was willing to play, indicative of her fact of the fact that she was willing to suffer the five forehand cross-court rallies before she finally got the short ball off the Tomjanovic forehand that she was able to redirect down the line or slicing deep to that backhand wing when playing defense just to earn herself an opportunity to get back to neutral in the rally, playing with depth in the backhand-to-backhand exchanges where you worried Tomjanovic might beat Jabur backhand-to-backhand, but Jabur was solid enough on that wing and willing enough to change direction to throw off the rhythm of Tomjanovic. 
look, the winners weren't uh, the the numbers weren't eye popping for Jabir. Twenty nine winners against thirty unforced errors, forty percent first serve percentage. The big thing was again she was willing to show off the defense. Only twelve winners for Tomjanovic, and because things weren't wor- working as cleanly from the ground, she was comfortable and successful moving forward into the court. Jabir eighteen of twenty four at the net in this match, and just forcing Tomjanovic to have to come up with a definitive you know passing or rally ending shot. That's what Tomjanovic struggles to do against elite competition, to create easy points from the center of the court. That's not Tomjanovic's bread and butter. Did she serve particularly well? No, she did not. Had she played a bunch of physical matches, whether it be the emotion of Serena or the come-from-behind first set against Samsonova, the come-from-behind third set against Rodina, yeah, certainly there are some, I don't want to say excuses, but signs you could point to for why Tomjanovic wasn't at her best physically to start this match. But again, she worked her way into it and she stayed disciplined throughout. She found a rhythm in the second set, built that 5-3 lead, but credit to Onjabur for buckling down and then some smart tactical aggression moving forward in the breaker. I think she won two of the, her seven points at the net and you know came up with a good plus one forehand when an easy opportunity presented itself behind a much needed first serve. The big thing for Own Jabur, I would say, looking at this tournament, I don't think she's played her best thus far. I think she played well against Veronica Kudermatova uh, to you know come back from a 5-2 first set deficit and take that match in straight sets. I think she played solid in sets two and three, wearing down Shelby Rogers in her third round match. But we haven't seen that vintage Own Jabur. I'm dictating from the start. I'm getting into my bag of tricks, the slices, the drop shots, the short angles. She did it against Madison Brangle round one. Obviously, the level of competition she has now is not Madison Brangle. And what is fascinating for Jabur is, again, she's faced a Kudermatova, top 10 server. She's faced a Shelby Rogers, top 10 server on hard courts. They're not creating with the efficiency and the relentlessness of Caroline. Well, yes, with the relentlessness, but not with the efficiency of Caroline Garcia. But at least Shabur has seen some power tennis and understands the need to take her return early on the rise and be the aggressor, even when in disadvantageous positions. Uh, I think Jabur actually, I like this matchup for her. I like her ability as a returner to redirect pace and just, again, to not allow Garcia to create cleanly from any position in the court. Now, again, is Garcia's power the overwhelming factor in the match? Absolutely, but... I, do I lean Garcia? I do. I think she's a minus 155 favorite for a reason, despite what the tennis abstract singles forecast says. That said, again, four own Jabur now, 42, uh, 43 and 13 this year, a remarkable one, uh, 103 and 38 overall since August 2020. You know, a second semifinal for her, first at the U.S. Open, but semifinals in consecutive slams. She's currently second in the points race, fewer than 100 points away from qualifying for the tour finals. So if she beats Garcia, she will be at the tour finals in Fort Worth. By the way, sneaking that news in Fort Worth, Texas, home of the 2022 WTA finals. I think you'll love to see it. Uh, certainly, I think it makes 
it more feasible for us to travel there. So looking forward to that event. But Jabur currently sitting at number two in the live rankings. The only players who can catch her, uh, Jess Pagula, if she wins the title, can catch Jabur. Sabalenka, if she wins the title, can catch Jabur. Those are the only players still alive in this event who can catch own Jabur in the rankings. Obviously, Iga Sviantek is going to be number one no matter what happens. But Man, credit to Own Jabur. Just again, for her to, because you go back to 2020, August 2020, she's 26 years old. And for her to have this three year run from ages 26 to, you know, 28, it's remarkably impressive to see a player make a jump like this. You know, we we're all so amazed by the jump Karatsev made. Jabur's done that on steroids, and Jabur's sustained. So, although Jabur was a little bit more present than Karatsev, I suppose, as a factor, particularly in the juniors, but man, so impressed by Own Jabur, the totality of things she can do into the semifinals of the U.S. Open for the first time. And again, for Isla Tamjanovic, now 32 and 21 overall on the year, but she's up to a new career high, number 34 in the live rankings and 28th in the points race. Just means she gets to set her schedule to start the 2020 season. Doesn't have to worry about qualifying at Indian Wells in Miami. You're getting into the main draw of those events. You might damn well be seated at the 2022 Australian Open, your uh, 2023, excuse me, your home country slam. That's got to be significant for the 29-year-old who at her stage of your career, again, all you ask is the ability to set your schedule, play the big events. She can do precisely that. It just means you are a successful professional tennis player but with that said again 66.8 percent odds according to tennis abstract that own jabur wins the match minus 155 odds according to DraftKings, that caroline garcia takes the match of course we'll preview both of the women's semifinals on wednesday's gsp ace of the day preview segment with that in mind let's move over to the men's side of things and let's start with the five set thriller karen hatchinov ultimately grinding out a five set victory over Nick Kyrgios, Hachinov, a 7-5-4-6-7-5-6-7-6-4 winner over the number 23 seed. You look for Hachinov. He is now into the semifinals of a slam for the first time in his career. That said, Karen Hachinov's made at least the third at least the third round, excuse me, in 14 of the last 17 slams played on the ATP tour. And Karen Hachinov now by reaching the fourth round of this U.S. Open. He's made the fourth round at eight different majors. So he has been a presence in the second weeks of slams, particularly over the last three, four seasons. You look for him since August 2020 alone. He's made four different fourth weeks, uh, fourth rounds, excuse me. If he made the fourth week of a slam, that would be impressive. But he's made four fourth rounds in the past 10 slams was only able to play nine of them because he wasn't able to play this year's Wimbledon. I think that speaks to, again, how consistent Karen Hatchinov has been at the big events. It's one fewer than Own Jabur, whose consistency I just lauded moments ago. And for Hatchinov, it's been about earning that definitive victory in the round of 16. Now, he's drawn Djokovic a couple of times, lost to him twice. He drew Murray back in 2017, lost to him. Played a really good match against Zverev in 2018, losing in five sets in the fourth round. And, you know, lost to Carlito uh, at Roland Garros earlier this season. Respectable losses, but no signature victories, really, for Karen Hatchinov at 
the slams in a second week at least to this point. Well, now he's got one in this five-set win over Nick Kyrgios. And look, again, aesthetically, this was not the prettiest tennis. I had a couple of people text me and say, really? I'm spending three and a half hours watching this, to which I said, welcome to the show, my friend. The numbers do not do this match justice. And what I mean by that is that the numbers make these players sound awfully good. Hatchinov, 30 aces, Kyrgios, 31. Hatchinov, 63 winners against just 31 unforced errors. Kyrgios, 75 winners against 58 unforced errors. Sounds flashy. I mean, and there was a lot of plus one success. Kyrgios, 25 of 38 at the net. Hatchinov, 19 of 30. You look at the total breaks of serve. There were six total breaks in five total sets. The margins between these two players were awfully thin. There were moments of physicality. I thought there were moments when Nick Kyrgios, particularly in that sec, uh, excuse me, that fourth set breaker, and for him to get the early break in set number two, where he just didn't miss a backhand, and he drove that backhand, you know, cross court, cross court down the line to force Karen Hatchinoff to have to hit the on the run forehand, and because of how extreme Karen Hatchinoff's forehand grip is, I mean, when he has to hit that forehand on the run, you never know what's going to happen. He might hit a forehand winner. He might shank the ball into the 10th row of Arthur Ashe Stadium. You just, the forehand on the run is always a mystery with Karen Hatchinov. That said, when he has time to set his feet behind that forehand and his movement into the backhand corner and just, you know, again, the totality of things he can do, the physicality he imposes himself with. Talk about a guy 6'6", 195, just built for the best of five-set format. It wasn't the prettiest tennis. Hatchinov was a little bit better than Kyrgios at the end. And obviously, end of the first set, 7-5, Kyrgios plays a sloppy service game, serving down 5-6, was pointing to his knee and had a trainer come out and work on that knee after the first set and said he was just really not comfortable walking around in that first set. You know, a sloppy service volley, uh, serve and volley attempt on set point. Hatchinov does a good job keeping his backhand return low, and as I referred to earlier, he dips and chases where first one low at the feet, second one he's able to definitively put away as Kyrgios kind of floats the first volley and lob over the head. Hatchinov takes the first set. But as Nick Kyrgios has done all year long, he continued to fight his way back. And he came out, got an early break of Hatchinov in set number two. And while, you know, again, didn't give that break back and was ultimately able to hold on to it, was ultimately able to take a 6-4 second set. You look in that second set, uh, 12 winners against 11 unforced errors, 6 of 8 at the net. There was one break point opportunity. Kyrgios was able to seize it, lands a good backhand return. Again, wasn't pretty tennis. One break point opportunity, a lot of plus one success. Kyrgios sort of coddling that knee at that point, wasn't always going that hard in his return games, up a break. But again, when he needed his physicality, particularly in set number four, he found, and down the home stretch of set number five, Kyrgios was able to find it. You know, that said, Hatchinov was the fitter of the two. And going into set number five, Kyrgios, you know, was and was the more solid of the two. And Kyrgios blinked, played a bad service game to kick off set number five. Hatchinov gets the early break. Hatchinov holds on to that break the rest of the way. And Again, for Karen Hatchinov, 60, makes 60% of his first serves, hits 30 aces, 
wins 64% of his second serve points, fights off seven of the nine break points that he faced, did a lot of them by hitting the big first serve into Kyrgios' body just to ensure he got a look at a plus one forehand with his feet set. And look, while that on-the-run forehand can spray, Hatchinov's ability to hit the plus one forehand is unquestioned, and his ability to drive his backhand down the line cross-court. The backhand is just good, and listening to Jimmy Arias, who was on the commentary, rave about the backhand, we could all see it as well. It was, he didn't match Kyrgios' consistency on the backhand wing, but he played it to 90%, which was good enough, given, you know, again, from a mental perspective, Hatchinoff just didn't blink in the fifth set. Kyrgios ultimately did. You look for Hatchinoff now, 31-20. and 20. Overall this year, he's holding serve 82.5% of the time. That's 0.5% better than the average of a top 50 player. And, you know, he's currently ranked 25th or 24th, excuse me, in hold percentage accordingly. The break percentage has struggled at time this year. And as we saw for Nick Kyrgios, if you can get pace into that Karen Hatchinoff forehand return, he's either going to shank it long or he's, you know, going to struggle to block it back and give you a slice return that you get a look at a plus one forehand behind. Kyrgios had a lot of success serving to that Hatchinoff forehand. That said, you know, Karen is strong enough that when he wants to make that decision to play 12 feet behind the baseline just to get a clean rip on the return of serve, he's able to do it. He was able to do that on some second serves that Kyrgios got a little tentative on, and these were few and far between moments, but it were, you know, again, the small moments, 5-6 first set and, you know, 5-6 uh, second set where these sorts of things are 5-all, I forget what it was, where these sorts of things made the difference. Credit to Hatchinoff, who again, into a semifinal of a major for the first time. You look for Karen Hatchinoff. He's back into the top 20 of the rankings for the first time since February 2021. And a man of his talent, yes, talent is an arbitrary thing, but a man who can do as many with his skill set, six foot six, powerful first serve, the ability to play big on the forehand, the physicality and the defensive abilities on the defense, uh, on the backhand wing. The movement, the strength to sustain throughout these three out of five set matches, he should never dip out of the top 20. If Pablo Carreño Busta ever retires, Karen Hatchinoff should be right there to take his seat on the throne of just guy who's always in the top 20. Now, again, when Karen Hatchinoff won the 2018 Paris Masters and felt like he was, you know, on the precipice of stardom as he had worked his way into the top 10 of the rankings, it felt like he would be a perennial top 10 guy because we talk about the modern ATP player size, speed, ability, you know, can't have a discernible weakness. And while the forehand is susceptible to pace because his forehand can also be a strength behind his serve and the consistency of his backhand, his willingness to move forward, you just felt like Hatchinov was going to be a sure thing as a prospect moving forward. And, He's been a relatively sure thing. I mean, he's been a top 30 guy now for about five years. Not a lot of players get to do that in their career. You know, the list is probably fewer than 200 guys who've been top 30 for five plus years. Any listener who wants to look it up, you have my blessing. At A.L. Gruskin, please let me know the results. But Karen Hatchinov has been in the mix. It's just been a, you know, again, we know his floor. What's his ceiling? Does today's match against Kyrgios cause you to reevaluate that ceiling? I don't know that it does. I mean, again, from a physicality perspective, there's a list of guys like Hachinov, Tiafo, Davidovich Fokina, Tommy Paul. 
you know, Demon Hour on hard courts, you want to throw Kasparud in there, fine. But you just feel like from a physical perspective that three out of five sets, they're just built for that fight. That that, you know, again, whether it be from their speed, their strength perspective, whatever it is, those guys from a fitness caliber, obviously Nadal, Djokovic are in that category as well. But that the, Cam Nori probably belongs there too, that they're always going to be able to hang. Hatchinov belongs in that club. And... It's going to be fascinating to see, you know, again, for Hachinov, who hasn't won a title since that 2018 Paris Masters, who, yes, made the Olympic final, but he's got two ATP finals since that Paris Masters title, if you include the Olympics, uh, Paris Masters title, and, you know, doesn't have a title since. Can he go out and capture one of these indoor hardcourt European events, a surface that ostensibly should suit him? That's a fascinating question, something to keep an eye on, on at the year end, and I suppose on the other half of the equation, will we see Nick Kyrgios play another match this year? Kyrgios now 35-10 and 10 overall on the year. Two slam quarterfinals for him. The Wimbledon final alongside with this U.S. Open run. You look for him now in his career at the Grand Slam level. That doubles his career totally and made two going into it back in 2014-2015. Again, you look for Nick Kyrgios now this season. He's played uh, 45 total matches. You look how many times has Kyrgios played 45 matches in his career in a single year. He did it 2016, 2017, and now this year. That's it. I mean, come on now. We Nick Kyrgios, 27 years old. We wanted to know what his prime looked like. I know I discussed this earlier in the week. We now know the answer to that question. You look for Nick Kyrgios' first in-hold percentage on the ATP Tour. Even without Wimbledon points, he's up to number 19 in the rankings, which just means no more wild cards. You're seeded at the Australian Open. You're seeded at Indian Wells, at Miami. If you want to go play the clay court events, you can go be seated there if you'd like as well. I mean, Nick Kyrgios, the question is, again, what does he take from this season? Certainly the confidence to know if when I am fit, when I am match tough, as he was throughout the course of this hardcourt summer and throughout the grass court season, he played his way into shape, and then he was in playing shape, even if he faded. Although I don't think he really did fade down the stretch against Hatchinov. I just think Hatchinov was that good, or that at least solid, down the home stretch physically. It wasn't to Nick's detriment. It was Hatchinov's strength. You know, what does Nick do between now and the start of the Australian Open? That's the question. What does he go about doing to capitalize on the success, on the degree of fitness he is now set as a foundation for himself? Because if he builds on this, we saw the defensive skills against Medvedev. We all know how successful he can be on the first serve. The totality of things Nick Kyrgios can do is scary. And again, next year's his age 28 season. As we saw, the window is open. Yes, Nadal played well. But should he have won that Australian Open final? Down two sets to love, 2-1 love 40. You know, if Medvedev gets the break, if he wins that Australian Open, how different are we looking at Nadal's season? Yeah, he won the French Open, but it wasn't great during the clay court season. You know, yes, he made the semifinals of Wimbledon, but had to withdraw from that Wimbledon and then bows out in the fourth round to Tiafo here at the U.S. Open. If he hadn't been so amazing in capitalizing at the Australian Open on his opportunity and beating Djokovic the way he did at the French Open, you know, maybe we would be thinking, you know, outside of those big matches, when we look big picture at 2022, it will be interesting to look at the framework for Rafa and where, what we think of him moving forward. Look, if Djokovic isn't going to be allowed to play the Australian Open or the U.S. Open, 
then those two events become inherently, and I apologize for using this word again, more open. And so now's the moment if you're Nick Kyrgios. Alcaraz Sinner can go about establishing themselves by closing out this U.S. Open with a title run, but they're not the unequivocal number one guys yet, even if they are so promising as young prospects. And Zverev, Medvedev, Tsitsipas, Rude, Berrettini, Rublev, Hachinov, these are all Kyrgios' peers. And yes, he loses this match, but it's a five-set match, and if they were to play again, Kyrgios isn't going to be afraid of that matchup. The window is open. This is the window. If you're Nick Kyrgios and you got a taste of it and to his credit, he opened that window for himself this season. But guess what? You open the window. Now, what do you do with that? That's the question we have to answer. And of course, hanging over all of it, he's got legal proceedings to deal with in Australia, dealing to, you know, an allegation of domestic abuse by a former spouse of his. Those are serious allegations that. Of course, we've heard no update on from the ATP Tour. Now, again, they're waiting on a court date, that court date coming up. And certainly, we will discuss that here on the Mini Break Podcast. But from a tennis perspective, you also have to discuss that the window has opened for Nick Kyrgios. However, not at this 2022 U.S. Open. It will be Hatchnov advancing to the semifinals, where he will take on Kasper Ruud. And with all due respect to Kasper, not much to add about this match. Berrettini was bad to start, and you go watch his first service game. Double fault, two miss plus one forehands, and a miss backhand. Break of serve, two love. Kasparud was up four love in literally 19 minutes against Matteo Berrettini in that opening set, and Berrettini drops that first set 6-1, and just right away, it's a one-set deficit, and you know right away gets broken at the start of set number two, and to Casper Root's credit, he did exactly what you're supposed to do against Matteo Berrettini. Kick serves to that Berrettini backhand, Casper Root particularly effective at hitting the inside-out backhand, uh, inside-out forehand into the Berrettini backhand corner, and then anytime, you know, he was not afraid if Berrettini was trying to camp out in the ad side corner, Kasparud caught him with his hand in the cookie jar and said, nope, I'm going to your forehand. I'm going to force you to hit the forehand on the run. And with how much pace and the heaviness of the Kasparud forehand into that corner, Berrettini just wasn't able to create comfortably with his forehand at any point of this match. And look, things tightened. You know, Rude goes up big in that second set only to see Berrettini get a break back from 5-2 to 5-4, though Rude does close it out at 6-4. Third set was the only set where Berrettini really even played decent. And you look for Matteo Berrettini, you know, overall in the match, uh, he hits 35 winners, 39 unforced errors. Set number three, he hit 21 of those 35 winners, seven of his 13 aces. The plus one forehand just finally found some rhythm. And even in set number three, you know, was able to get one break, but had five break point chances, only had nine break point chances in the match, was, you know, stepping up a little bit more comfortably on the return of serve, just being more aggressive with that return because he was losing every point at neutral. And look, he started going for broke, started doing the things that Matteo Berrettini needs to do to have success. But he just didn't have the rhythm to do those things in sets number one or two. And credit to Casper Root, who was ruthlessly efficient uh, in the way he went about attacking the Berrettini weakness, which is, of course, the Berrettini backhand. And you have to be elite in attacking that backhand because if you leave anything sitting or you're not successful hitting the kick serve and it floats up, Berrettini's going to punish you with a plus one forehand. But Casper Root is a good enough player and an efficient enough player that he was successful in exploiting that weakness over. Over and over and over again. And now you look for Kasparud, 43-15 and 15 overall this season into a second slam 
Slam semifinal on the year. Obviously, his second overall in his career. Finals of the French Open, now semifinals here at the U.S. Open. Did you know Casper Ruud, number two in the live rankings on the ATP Tour. If he beats Karen Hatchinov tomorrow, he will ascend to the number one ranking in the world. He will surpass Rafael Nadal. Now, if Kasparud faces Carlos Alcaraz in the final, then that match is to decide the world number one. And that would be extraordinarily fitting if the winner of that match in winning their first slam title ascends to the world number one ranking. I think that's the sort of poetry all of us tennis fans can get behind. But man, Kasparud has just put himself in this position 111 and 40 since August 2020. I mean, again, for him this season, 43 and 15 overall. He is one of the 11 guys to rank top 25 in both hold and break percentage. And even after a disappointing winning clay court season by his standards outside of that run to the French Open title, uh, French Open final, excuse me. You know, he did win the title in Geneva, wins the title in Stad, but first round loss in Bostad, you know, semifinals of Rome, but first round loss in Madrid, second round loss in Munich. Again, by his standards, a disappointing clay court season because he thinks he can be the guy on clay courts moving forward. And yet he has been one of the eight most consistent players on hard courts really since August 2020. You look just for the results for him during this stretch of time on the hard courts. He's made, you know, semifinals of the tour finals of Miami Masters, Canada Masters, now the U.S. Open. He's made quarterfinals in, you know, Cincinnati and Canada uh, back in 2021 as well quarterfinals in Paris. He's just one of those guys who's not going to beat himself, whose floor is remarkably high, and whose ceiling when he's serving well and is getting free looks at that first forehand with how well he returns, how many balls he puts in play, how physical he can be. It's a really high floor for Kasparud. And so again, Kasparud up to number two in the live rankings. He's also currently fourth in the points race, but it's a 1,070-point deficit between he and fifth place Daniil Medvedev. Kasparud is 380 points away from clinching a spot at the Tour Finals. You still have Paris to go. Kasparud's making the year-end finals for the second consecutive season, and again, you just don't see how many players before they turn 24 have made two ATP Tour Finals. I bet that list is no greater than 50. And again, at Ale Gruskin for those of you listeners who are able to go look that up. As for Matteo Berrettini, 25 and 10 overall in the year. He didn't play well the entire tournament, barring that Andy Murray match, and yet, you know, kind of sleepswalks his way to another slam quarterfinal, which is just where he's been in countless slams over the course of the past three seasons. You look for Berrettini, semifinals in Australia, quarterfinals at the U.S. Open were his two results this year, of course. Finals Wimbledon, quarterfinals Roland Garros, quarterfinals U.S. Open last year. If your last five results are three quarterfinals, a semifinal, and a final, I think we'd agree you're doing something right. And with his run, Matteo Berrettini, interestingly, down to number 15 in the live rankings, but back up to number 13 in the points race. Only a, what, between he and eighth place, Alex Zverev, fewer than 500 points. Zverev's still in eighth place to make the the tour finals. That's an interesting thing to note, and I know there's some exemptions where Djokovic may be able to play because he won a slam title, and there's some bylaws that allow those players to play, and then, you know, certainly Rafa, who's already clinched his spot to the year-end finals, I don't think he's going to play them, but maybe he will. And so maybe that's another spot that opens or Djokovic takes. 
nevertheless, Kasparud's going to be there. And that's a credit to the 23-year-old who, again, will make it for a second consecutive season. With that said, for what it's worth, Kasparud, 71.2% favorite according to Tennis Abstract, minus 205 according to our friends at DraftKings. And again, we will be sure to preview that match on Thursday's edition of our GSP Ace of the Day preview show. With that said, that's day number nine of the 2022 U.S. Open in the books. Of course, if you've missed anything from the action in New York, be sure to go check out our website, CrackedRackets.com, where you can find every day's mini break podcast recapping everything. Of course, a shout out to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the of an editing job he does day in, day out, making all of this content possible. Shout out as well to our friends at Tennis Point. Remember, it's tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With that said, for our super producer, Daniel Westoff, stuff our friends at tennis point from all of us here at both cracked rackets and the tennis channel podcast network i'm your host alex gruskin you know what we say that's the break we'll talk to you all tomorrow thanks everyone